1972, NASA launched a, a space probe called Pioneer 10. I know that 1972 is before some of you were born. Uh, but the satellite's mission at that time was to explore some of the um, further parts of the galaxy. Um, the, the hope was that it would reach Jupiter and study its moons and, and the planet. And it would send the data back to Earth. Scientists thought this was a, a, a bold plan because no satellite had ever gone further than Mars. And they were afraid that perhaps the asteroid belt would, would destroy the satellite before it could reach its target. But Pioneer 10 did reach Jupiter and much more. Uh, because Jupiter is a, a bigger planet and its gra gravitational field is stronger, um, Jupiter, uh, Pioneer 10 was catapulted round Jupiter and, and set off at a much greater speed, um, deeper into space, uh, towards the edge of our solar system. So that at about a billion miles from the sun, it passed Saturn. And then it continued past Uranus, and then Neptune, and then, at that time, of course, Pluto was still a planet, although it's no longer a planet. Um, about four billion miles from the sun, it passed Pluto. By 1997, so 25 years after it was first launched, Pioneer 10 was more than 6 billion miles from the sun. And it was still going and still sending signals back to NASA. They finally lost touch with Pioneer 10 on the 23rd of January 2003. Its trajectory is expected, it's still going, but we don't have any communication with it now. But it's still going in the, in the direction of the star Alderbarn, which is not from Star Wars, it's a real star. <laughs> and at its present rate, Pioneer 10 will reach there in about 2 million years. <laughs> I'm telling you all that, not for a science lesson, but before they lost contact with Pioneer 10, one of the scientists from uh, NASA called Jarov said perhaps the most remarkable thing about Pioneer 10 is that those signals that it's sending back to Earth come from an 8-watt transmitter. which is about as much power as it takes to, to power a, a bedroom nightlight. And it sends these signals back to Earth. Can you imagine accomplishing so much with so little, with an 8-watt transmitter? 
But God delights to do that, to accomplish great things with relatively little. And that's certainly true in the church. And it's important for us to grasp some foundational truths that help us understand who we are, our identity as God's adopted sons and daughters, and our calling to be part of the church, the body of Christ, to understand our part in the building of God's kingdom through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because really that's why the book of Ephesians was written. God wants to build his church up in love. That's what it tells us in uh, chapter 4, verse 16, but I don't want to um, second guess what Scott might say about that when you, when you come to that. He also, uh, it, Paul also says that um, it, he wants to build He wants the church to build itself up in love so that it can stand against the devil's schemes and fearlessly proclaim the mystery of the gospel. That's the purpose of the letter to to Ephesians. But in order for that to happen, we have to understand some basic spiritual realities. And, And some of these are spelled out in the passage that we read this morning. Here, Paul is praying for the church, asking God that we should come to know certain things. If we want to know who we are in Christ and who we are in the church, then first of all, we have to know God. Not just know about God, but know God fully and personally. There's a minister and author called Tim Keller, some of you may have heard of him. He tells a story about his brother-in-law who didn't like to wear a seatbelt in the car. And Tim always um, gave him a row for that. But one time, Tim's brother-in-law came to pick him up in the car at the airport and he was wearing a seatbelt. And Tim Keller asked his brother-in-law what happened. Why the change of heart? And his brother-in-law told him, well, I went to visit a friend in hospital who was in a car accident and went through the windscreen and ended up with two or three hundred stitches in his face. And I said to myself, well, I better wear a seatbelt. And they chatted about that for a wee while. And Tim Keller asked, Did you not know that before? Did you not know that if you don't wear a seatbelt, then if you're in an accident, the chances are you're going to be thrown through the windscreen? And his brother-in-law said, of course I knew it. But when I went to see my friend in hospital, I didn't get any new information. But the information got a lot more real. And it finally sank in and affected the way I live. That's the kind of knowledge of God that we need. We don't need more information about God. We need information to get real and affect the way we live our lives. 
That's how we need to, to know God. We don't need more information about God as much as we need for God himself to get real in our hearts and affect the way we live our lives. If only he would reveal himself in that way during our, our times of prayer, our times of worship. Our greatest need is not for more information about God, but just for more of him in our lives. And we get to know God just the same way as we get to know any, any other person, by spending time with him, by spending time in his word, the Bible, by listening to him, and then spend time in prayer, talking with God about the things that he says in his word. Because spending time with him is crucially important. Because if we want to know who we are in Christ and in the church, then we first and foremost need to get to know God better. That is key. Without it, nothing else happens. But with it, if we can get to know God, then we can know his hope. We can experience the assurance of his calling. We can live in confidence that comes from, from knowing him, knowing that he has personally invited us into a relationship with himself. In verse 18 of our reading, Paul says that he's praying that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. God's calling gives us great hope. It gives us great confidence. Now, hope can be a, a misunderstood word. Some people um, buy their lottery tickets and hope that they're going to win. That's not the kind of hope that the Bible's talking about. Hope in, in, in the Bible is not just crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. The hope that God gives us is a confident assurance about the future because his promises are trustworthy and never fail. Those of us who believe in Christ have been called. We have a, a personal relationship with him. A personal relationship with the Lord of the universe. We're invited to come into his presence. And that should give us great confidence that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. And we can also go boldly into the, the world around us a world that is in desperate need of a saviour. We can serve God boldly wherever he calls us. If we want to know who we are in Christ and in the church, then first we need to know God. Second, we need to know God's hope, the assurance of his calling. And third, we need to know 
God's resources, God's wealth, the riches of his glorious inheritance. We need to have a, a grasp of who God actually is. The psalmist says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The book of Revelation tells us that he has streets paved with gold. In one sense, you could say God is very wealthy. But his true wealth doesn't lie in possessions and things. Look again at verse 18. Paul is praying that you might not only know what is the hope to which he has called you, but also what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. It's not talking there about our inheritance, interestingly. Did you notice that? It's talking about what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. God's inheritance is found in people, not in possessions. It's in you and me who have trusted Christ as our saviour. God, in other words, God considers himself rich not because he has a lot of stuff, but because he has us, whom he calls his saints. I want to tell you a wee story from an old Reader's Digest. And it's old, so um, it's talking about a subject that, that, that uh, I hope you don't find offensive, but it was, um, it was the culture of uh, particular Pacific Islands. Um, it's a story that was, was in the February 1988 edition of Reader's Digest. And it's about a man who paid eight cows for his wife. The man was called Johnny Lingo. And he was regarded by the islanders to be the, the strongest, brightest, richest young man around. He was also regarded as a shrewd trader. And for that reason, the, the islanders were, were a wee bit perplexed that he had paid so much for his wife. According to island custom, two or three cows would normally buy a decent wife. And if you wanted a specially good wife, maybe four or five cows. But it was unheard of to pay eight cows for a wife. And here's the thing. According to the other islanders, Johnny Lingo's wife was nothing special. Her name was Sarita. And in their eyes, she was anything but beautiful. Before she married, now, they would judge beauty in a different way to us. And, and we all know that beauty is, um, is only skin deep and all that stuff. But this is their customs we're talking about. 
According to them, she was scrawny. She was a homely-looking girl who walked with her shoulders hunched and her head bowed. She was afraid of her own shadow. Her father would have thought himself lucky to get even one cow for this girl. But even so, Johnny showed up at his hut one day and said, Father of Sarita, I offer you eight cows for your daughter. That was unbelievable. And that's what the the islanders told um, the reporter, whose name was Patricia McGuire, who wrote the story, obviously. So after she heard all this, she thought, I need to find this, uh, this couple, this Johnny Lingo and his wife, Sarita. And when she did, she writes in her article, I discovered the most beautiful woman I had ever seen. And she told Johnny what the other islanders had said about his wife, and he just kind of smiled. And then he told his side of the story. He asked, do you ever think what it must mean to a woman to know that her husband has paid the lowest possible price for his wife? And then later, when the women talk and they boast of what their husbands paid for them, one says, well, my husband paid four cows and another maybe five. How does the woman who was sold for one or two cows feel? I didn't want that for my Sarita. Must be quite a wise man, this. He says, many things can change a woman. Things happen inside, things happen outside. But the things, the thing that matters most is what she thinks about herself. Sarita used to think that she was worth very little. But now she knows that she is worth more than any other woman in the island. And Johnny went on to say, I wanted to marry Sarita because I loved her and no other woman. But I wanted an eight-cow wife. And that's what I got. Because I valued her so highly. It's an interesting wee story. But when you think, when we think about how highly God values us, and what he was prepared to pay for us. We realize, or hopefully realize, the significance. First Peter says, You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited by your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. God paid that price the highest possible price for you and for me. He paid the price of his, his own son's blood on the cross. So in a world where people often believe that they're worth very little, it's great to know that we are worth that much to him. That kind of knowledge changes 
how we see ourselves. We don't need to walk around with our shoulders hunched and our heads bowed low. Because we know the price that God paid for us and how highly he values us. And then, if we, if we know who we are in Christ and his church, then we also need to know about his power. We must experience in our own lives his incredible might. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the right, at his right hand in the heavenly places. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that almost unbelievable? There's nothing that can stand in our way if we know how strong we really are in Christ. And yet most of us, most of the time, remain unaware of the strength that is available to us. We don't think of how powerful God is or can be through us. So we go through life being discouraged and disappointed. We say to ourselves, I could never do that. I could never speak to my neighbours about my faith. I could never seek reconciliation with that person who has hurt me. I could never, and so on and so on. And, and instead, we settle for a mediocre existence with our lives, our lives going nowhere. But it doesn't have to be like that. Sometimes we we tend to overthink things. We overthink who we are and what our place is in God's plan for the salvation of the world and the building of his kingdom. And we think, what can I do? We, think, we may think we have no more strength or power than an eight-watt transmitter. But when we know the hope to which he has called us and the riches of his glorious inheritance in his people, that's us, and the incomparable power that he has on offer for us who believe, the same power that he exerted to raise Jesus from the dead and to seat him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all ruler rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked not only in the present age but in the world to come. When we know that, not only in our minds but in our hearts, we can be equipped to play our part in building the kingdom of God. We are the body of Christ in the world. We are to encourage each other, to build each other up in fellowship and in faith. 
you know, there's, a, there's an urban myth. I wish it was true, but it, it's not really. But it, it, it's, it's an interesting um, an interesting story. The urban myth goes that um, when NASA was thinking about sending people into space, they soon discovered that they had a problem that they hadn't anticipated, which was ballpoint pens don't work in zero gravity. And so NASA spent... Uh, billions of dollars and years of research developing a pen that would work in zero gravity. It would work upside down, it would work underwater, it would write on any surface, at any temperature. The Russians, meanwhile, who didn't have billions of dollars to spend, just used a pencil. <laughs> Wish that was true. But it's not. But the point is, sometimes we can overthink things. We can overthink the challenge of being a servant of God. When actually, it's not rocket science. It's just a matter of allowing God to use us to change the world. But in order for that to happen, we need to spend time getting to know him. Let's pray. Father God, you are so great. When we consider the, the stars, the work of your hands, and we think how small human beings are. And then we, we remember that you made us. And not only did you make us, but you sent your son. You paid the highest possible price to redeem us, to set us free. And, to, and that you send your Holy Spirit to equip us for the work that you have called us to. Enable us to open our minds and our hearts to you, to know you, and to know how we fit into your plan for the salvation of the world, and to give ourselves, weak as we may be, to give ourselves into your hands, because in your hands, even the weakest of us can accomplish marvelous things. So take us and use us to build your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.